Welcome to uh, 10 o'clock church and uh, glad that you could come this morning. Uh, Let me pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Through this part of Mark, lift our eyes to his majesty. Help us to see that in him we find our rest. Help us to see that he has brought the great victory over the evil one through his death on the cross. Help us to celebrate him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Amen. Now, I was really hoping to show you a picture of a wedding, a particular wedding. My third son, Jack, got married last March, but imagine a wedding scene in your mind. I love weddings, and as a wedding preacher, I actually love the moment where I stand before the couple, hold their hands and say, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Uh, I love the feasting and the dancing And uh, we celebrated that last March with our son, Jack, who married the lovely Olivia. Uh, I don't know if you've been at a wedding reception where the MC has stood up and has said, in order to celebrate the groom, I declare a fast. No food. Uh, The parents are excited. That's a few thousand dollars off the bill. Uh, It's a ridiculous kind of thought, isn't it? When we come to this uh, passage of Mark, it opens with Jesus being questioned, why don't you and your disciples fast like the Pharisees do or the disciples of John the Baptist? And Jesus says this answer, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't so long as they have him with them. And he wanted to say, while the bridegroom is with his people, there is feasting and celebration. And uh, this morning I want you to see that here is a passage that invites us to lift our eyes to the majesty of Jesus and celebrate him as the bridegroom. I'm going to use that word picture to bring a couple of thoughts together for us. Uh, Last week, we saw that Jesus feasted with the tax collectors as he brought people to his table. This morning, I want you to see two things. As the bridegroom, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And as the bridegroom, Jesus is stronger than the strong man. Now, these two points are rich and deep, even in the application for us. So the passage isn't going to say everything there is to say about the Sabbath. And the passage isn't going to say everything there is to say about demons. And more questions might be raised for you, for which it would be good for us to have conversations. Both passages will point us to the majesty of Jesus. And so we want to leave here this morning strengthened in our confidence that Jesus is the bridegroom and we ought to be eager to celebrate him in our time together. Well, let me come to that first point. Let's celebrate the bridegroom, his Lord of the Sabbath. And uh, Mark deliberately gives us two Sabbath encounters that are provocative exchanges with the Pharisees of the day. In uh, chapter 2, 23 to 28, there's an incident about working on the Sabbath. And in chapter 3, 3 to 6, uh, there's an incident about healing on the Sabbath. 
And in both incidents, Jesus provokes the legalism of the day in order to teach correctly how the Sabbath is our servant and not our master. We read about the first one in uh, chapter 2, 23. On Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and his disciples were walking along. They began to pick some corn, uh, ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus' response shows his insight into who he is. He takes them back to King David and a particular incident that you could look up in 1 Samuel 21, where the priest, one of the priests of the day, Abiathar, gives food that had been dedicated to the Lord to David and his friends who are in a situation of escaping. The point of the story is that ceremonial laws are our servants and not our masters, And it's what Jesus says next that catches our attention. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus confronts the Sabbath legalism of the Pharisees who had turned the fifth commandment and the Ten Commandments into 613 commandments to keep, and a whole bunch of them is what you did on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday in, those, in, the, in the practice. Uh, the second encounter on the Sabbath is even more provocative, chapter 3, 3 to 6. Jesus is in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. His opposers were waiting to test him. They wanted to see what he would do on the Sabbath. Jesus knows their hearts and minds. And he says to a man with a shriveled hand in the crowd, come over here, stand up in front of everyone. And he says to the crowd, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? There was silence. They'd worked out it's hard to speak against the authority of Jesus. And Jesus is wanting to underscore here, the Sabbath is for doing good, not for being bound up by laws. And we even see the emotion of Jesus in verse 5. Did you notice it? He looked around at them in anger. He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. The opposition in this part of Mark's gospel is increasing. Uh, And so Jesus says boldly, stretch out your hand to the man. And his hand was completely restored. What's the response? Look in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now what I want you to see is that Mark puts these two scenes together to underscore who Jesus is. He has come to be Lord of the Sabbath. He uh, confronts the legalism of the day and he invites people to find rest and peace in him. Now, uh, Sabbath is one of those rich and deep topics that we could spend a lot of time thinking about. And this passage doesn't say everything there is to say, but what it does say is this, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and he rescues the Sabbath 
from the legalism of the day. We're reminded, aren't we, that the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments are to keep the Sabbath day uh, in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do work, neither your son or your daughter, your, and so on. And in verse 11 of uh, Exodus 20, it says this, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There's a lot we can say about the Sabbath. But what its intention was to be a moment of celebration in the weekly cycle of the life of God's people. The celebration that God is our creator and we are created for him to relate to him and celebrate him. So as we talk about the Sabbath, I think uh, there are two different kinds of mistakes that people may be tempted to make. The first mistake is Sabbath legalism. And we see in this passage how Jesus confronts that especially in the second encounter. The second mistake that people make is Sabbath lawlessness, disregarding the Sabbath so much that it makes no difference at all. And I think as we think about the Sabbath, the demographic that we're in influences us to lean one way or the other, legalism or lawlessness. And on the topic of Sabbath, we live in years of great change. 40 or 50 years ago, Christianity had such an influence on the general culture that our governing authorities helped us to keep the Sabbath by the local laws. No shopping, no sport. I think the next generation, even of churchgoer, rebelled against some of those austere expressions of Sabbath keeping and erred into lawlessness. We now live in days that are post-Christian and our culture has rejected the idea of God as creator and the idea of keeping a Sabbath in honour of his creation. And so we live in a 24-7 uh, world. Our generation of Christianity has to work out how do we keep a Sabbath cycle in our week where there's none of the laws of the land that are helping us to do that. In this particular passage, Jesus exercises his lordship by rescuing the Sabbath from the legalism of the day and at the same time calling us to find our rest in him. Sabbath is about recognising that we are wired for a work-rest cycle. We live in a world where we're all busy. Uh, COVID lockdowns gave us a small glimpse of what less busy looked like and it felt good in different parts of that, but now the world's opening up again, so has the busyness. Humans are complex creatures in God's creation. We need physical rest from our work. We need psychological rest from the pressures of this present life. And we need spiritual rest in Jesus. And so to you who call yourself followers of Jesus, I want to encourage you as we think about Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath, that we celebrate him, that we take control of our diaries in such a way that in our weekly cycle, uh, that we make a priority of resting in Jesus. Uh, life 
pushes Jesus to the margins. And as we work out how do we live Sabbath out in a 24-7 culture of the world that we live in, there's an encouragement for us to take control. And to families, I want to say, in our weekly life together, we want to encourage our children to make meeting with Jesus and his people the priority of our life ebb and flow. What a great privilege we have to help our children know that meeting with Jesus and his people is the most important thing we can do for he is Lord of the Sabbath and we find our rest in him. It's Matthew's gospel where Jesus puts out the invitation, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and we're invited to celebrate him as Lord of the Sabbath in these passages, knowing that we find refreshment for our souls in him. So there's an encouragement for us to take control of our diaries, and make him the centre of the ebb and flow of our week. Well, that's a rich and deep thought in and of itself, and it raises lots of questions and encouragements. The second thought I want to share with you this morning is equally rich. Celebrate Jesus as the bridegroom. He's stronger than the strong man. And so we see in uh, 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 chapter 3, verses 20 to 34... There's a section where Jesus talks about being Lord of the spirit realm. Uh, In a Christian worldview, there is no embarrassment about including supernatural things in the created order. And as readers of Mark's gospel, Mark has no embarrassment in talking about supernatural things and about the spirit world in his gospel. They form the backdrop for the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, We've already seen supernatural things happening as part of this narrative. Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness. Jesus receiving ministry by angels. Jesus casting out demons. Jesus silencing demons. And so when we get to the back part of chapter 3, we're introduced to Jesus as uh, the stronger man who came to bind the strong man. Uh, Jesus is the stronger one. He is in control, and it's a topic that uh, is introduced because, again, the criticism of the religious leaders. Chapter 3, verse 22, uh, you heard there's more grumbling. He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, if I had a little bit more time, I'd love to show you how verses 20 to 34 is what I call a theological hamburger. It's structured in such a way to bring our eyes to the meat of this passage, which is verse 26, which says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. From this passage, I want you to see three things about the majesty and authority of Jesus as the strong man, stronger man who came to bind the strong man. Uh, In verses 23, Jesus says, I am not from the devil. 
and it's in response to the criticism of the teachers of the law, he tells a couple of parables. In verse 23, he says this, How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now, what Jesus is uh, rebuking the ridiculous report that his power has come from the demonic. And his opposers who have seen his wonders have ascribed his power to the demons. And uh, the, t- the talk about a divided kingdom makes a lot of sense to us. And it shows us it's a ridiculous thing to say that Jesus is casting out demons with the power of demons. Uh, Kingdoms divided against themselves won't stand. And as one small example from history, the US Civil War saw 618,220 military people die in that conflict. It was a terrible uh, toll on the United States of America. Well, they weren't united, were they, in that moment? And as a contrast, in World War II, only 416 that military people died in the US to get a contrast about how terrible a civil war is. Jesus is saying, my power is not from the devil. It's not by the devil that I cast out demons. And verse 26 is the meat of the passage. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. Then Jesus steps into the second uh, picture And he says to us, Jesus is stronger than the strong man. Not only is he not of the devil, he's stronger than the devil. Jesus is the Lord of the spirit realm. And he came to bind Satan. Now this is the, I think, only moment in Mark's gospel where you get an understanding of Jesus' self-awareness of his ministry and victory over the devil and the demons. And it asks the question for us, doesn't it? How does Jesus come and bind the strong man? And in verse 27, we see his parable. No one enters a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder that strong man's house. Jesus came to have victory over Satan. And we'll talk in a moment how that is achieved, and how Mark points us to the cross. The third thing I want you to notice that Jesus says here is that ascribing Jesus' power to the demonic is unforgivable. And uh, it's important that we read verses 28 and 29 in the context with the broader conversation. There's lots of things said about these particular verses. Jesus says, "'Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven.'" all their sins and every slander that they utter, but the one, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now, as readers of Mark's gospel, we want to be careful here and read these words in their context. And the context sees the Pharisees ascribing the power of Jesus to the demons. And Jesus comes and rebukes them for these words. So the unforgivable sin 
is the sin of ascribing what is glorious and wondrous and powerful in Jesus to the demonic. The ministry of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, uh, is opposed here by these Pharisees and their belligerent turning against the uh, wonder of the Son leads them in a place of no forgiveness. We might want to think about that a little bit more. Well, how does this, what are the implications for us in seeing Jesus in this particular way? Like the Sabbath, the thinking about demons and the devil and the demonic realm, uh, people can make two kinds of mistakes in thinking about it. The first mistake is underestimating the power of the devil. In other places, John 8, Satan is described as the father of lies. And we ought not to underestimate his work in the world. And there's a lot of discussion about Western culture that really seeks to deny or mock supernatural things, whether we've bought the lie that the devil has no power. C.S. Lewis explored it in, in the screw tape letters where a senior devil and a junior devil talked about how it was good for the local populace to think that the devil had no power. It's my missionary friends uh, working in Eastern countries or African countries that are reminded that the devil works in more overt ways. It's Peter in the New Testament that reminds us that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. If we take seriously the power of the evil one, then in this passage we need to take seriously the words of Jesus who came to bind the power of the devil, who's stronger than the strong man. And so there's an opportunity for us to have our eyes lifted to the majesty of Jesus and not be fearful of the power of the devil, but acknowledge it rightly and acknowledge rightly the authority of Jesus. The other mistake that people make at the other end of the spectrum is to overestimate the power of the devil, to live in such fear of him and his minions and his demons that I am paralyzed in this life with fear. It's an area that's fraught with misunderstanding. And again, this passage reminds us we need not fear because Jesus, the stronger one, came to bind the strong man. Uh, we've seen this in chapter 3 already, in verse 11 earlier. Whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus comes to bring victory over the demons and the devil and the demonic realm. And so uh, we don't want to overestimate the power of the devil and we don't want to underestimate the authority of Jesus in our lives. So the third thing I wanted to say really is the balanced place to live is to understand that Jesus is Lord, Lord over all, Lord over the spirit realm, not underestimating the power of the evil one, not overestimating the power of the evil one, but standing in the victory of the Son of God. Because Mark's gospel is ultimately going to show us that Jesus' victory over devil and death was at the cross. 
And uh, Jesus conquered Satan at the cross. And it's at the cross that we stand in the victory of the stronger man, Jesus. Now, Mark implies that on the journey he's taking that through his gospel. Uh, Colossians and Hebrews explicitly state that so we can leave here with great confidence that Jesus as the Lord over the spirit realm had his great victory at the cross. Colossians 2 says this, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In Hebrews 2, Andrew's already read this out for us. Jesus shared in our humanity that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And so these passages remind us that at the cross, Jesus bound the strong man and had a victory over death and evil. What Mark tells us in chapter 3 is that Jesus is not of the devil. His power is not evil. He's Lord of the spirit realm. Jesus is Lord and the devil is not. And ascribing Jesus' power to the demonic is an unforgivable sin. So here is another powerful thing to be reminded of about who Jesus is, that we might celebrate him as our bridegroom. Well, let me step back. We're invited this morning to celebrate Jesus. And I encourage you to do that in your heart as we see him in these passages. As the bridegroom, he's Lord of the Sabbath. And we find our rest of our, for our souls in him. As the bridegroom, he's Lord of the spirit realm and he conquered Satan at the cross, binding the strong man and rendering him powerless. So I want to say to you this morning, come with me and celebrate Jesus. Revelation 19 finishes with a picture of the feast of the wedding of, uh, of the Lamb and the, with these words, let us rejoice and be glad. And give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen and bright and clean was given to her to wear. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Amen. Let me pray. Dear God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the majesty of your Son. We thank you that he is our bridegroom to celebrate. We thank you that he's Lord of the Sabbath in whom we find rest for our souls. We thank you that he's stronger than the strong man. We thank you for his victory at the cross. We look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Amen.